Greetings. It's 1 o'clock here in WILLAM 580. I'm Bob McChesney, and you're listening to Media Matters. Today, our guest is going to be the co-author of an extraordinary new book that talks about the state of America from the bottom up and what it means going forward politically in the coming years and decades. Our guest, Chris Hedges, joining us today to talk about his book, Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt. He'll be here for the whole hour, but before we go to our guest, let's go to NPR News. Okie dokie. Welcome back to Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney, coming to you live today in WILLAM 580. Our guest today is the co-author with Joe Sacco of a new book, Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt. Uh, Chris Hedges is well known to many of our listeners. He has been on the program several times before. He's the former journalist for the New York Times, Pulitzer Prize winning reporter, who has written several books uh, of note that we've discussed here on the book, The Death of the Liberal Class, Empire of Illusion. Uh, the World As It Is, and now his new book, Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt. Chris Hedges, thank you for joining us at Media Matters. Thank you. And uh, I, I want to say, before we get into the book, I don't know if you managed to hear the newscast that predates the show that we put on just now, uh, but much of the talk was about the presidential election. Uh, and coming off the two conventions, I read your book sort of during these conventions, and it was it was really quite a striking contrast between what you're describing in this book, what's going on in America, and the way the political class in both parties is sort of dealing with the world. And I just wanted you, if you had any observations on that point. Well, it's utterly unplugged from the reality that is now being visited upon most Americans. Uh, the coverage itself uh sort of swings from the banal to the inane uh you know it's it's not only uh our political can, campaigns covered in the same way we cover sporting events blow by blow uh but you know it's effectiveness i mean the, you know was clinton's speech effective uh obama's speech wasn't effective uh you know the, the way that the two sides hurl half truths and outright lies back and forth uh, and they're, of course, not checked. Uh, and and the fundamental issues, uh, economic issues, uh, that are now gripping, uh, you know, roughly two-thirds of this country who are really struggling, you know, tens of millions of these people in the country in, in some despair, as uh, we chronicle in this book, Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, it, it's just, it's complete, it's, you know, it's Disney World. It's just not even mentioned. I mean, they don't even use the word poor. Uh, in this campaign, uh, and uh, yeah, the, the rhetoric just has no connection with with the reality uh, on both parts. I mean, Obama uh, spins one narrative, Romney spins another narrative, uh, and yet the engines of corporate power, uh, which I think both parties assiduously serve, uh, you know, chug forward. You know, I, when I was reading uh, uh, your book and thinking of, uh, of the conventions, I was struck by a headline in The Onion, of all things, not too long ago, which the headline was something like, new poll shows lower class happy it's not in the middle class. Uh, 
it's sort of the point is, with all stuff with the middle class sort of takes for granted there's something below it that's irrelevant. Yeah, I mean, you know, what's happened, in fact, is a very frightening reconfiguration of American society. Uh, and we are barreling towards a neo-feudalism, an oligarchic state. Uh, the working class has been virtually destroyed. Uh, in, and when I say that, I mean in, in sort of the capacity of a working man or woman to earn an income uh, which can sustain a family of four and provide benefits that's gone. Uh, and now we're seeing uh, the assault that was carried out against the working class being visited upon the middle class. There was a New York Times story a few weeks ago which looked at people who had lost jobs and then regained jobs, lost jobs in the 2008 meltdown. And uh, in almost all cases, they were working at salaries that were 40 or 50 percent less than what they had had before without any kind of benefits or protection. That, that's the world that's being created. I mean, one of the things that I find so galling about the Democratic platform is the way they tout uh, saving the auto industry. Uh, well, which is true. I mean, they did, uh, you know, provide loans that propped up the auto industry, but the cost was to the workers. Uh, unionized workers saw egregious pay cuts, uh, dropping from about 75 or $76 an hour to 50 uh, and then, well, I mean, unfortunately, with the UAW's acquiescence, uh, new hires will come in at $14 an hour. Uh, and uh, written into the proposal is that uh, if they strike, they forfeit the government loans. I mean, it is this, uh, you know, assault against the working class, which both parties, uh, frankly, uh, you know, ever since the Clinton administration, are, are culpable uh, in carrying out. And that's very much uh, at the book. I mean, the heart of the book is looking at, at what we call sacrifice zones, the poorest pockets of the country, uh, where uh, communities, families, individuals, uh, the environment have all been forced to kneel before the dictates of the marketplace. And it's a kind of book is a kind of flashing red light that said, you better look here, uh, because these people went first and we're going next. Now that we live in a world where there is no impediment to uh, to corporate power. Uh, you know, there, you know there, there's nothing left. There's nothing between us and them. Our guest today, Chris Hedges. I'm Bob McChesney. This is Media Matters. We're live on WILLAM 580 today, this Sunday. The phone number here, if you have a question or comment for Chris Hedges, 217-333-9455. The toll-free line, of course, 1-800-222-9455. Uh, Chris Hedges, along with Joe Sacco, is co-author of the brand new book just published by Nation Books and getting great reviews, Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt. Chris just began describing the book. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about it right now. Chris, why did you decide to write this book and and tell a little bit about Joe Sacco and how the two of you split up duties? Uh, well, we wanted to write the book because I think we both feel that we've undergone a, a corporate coup d'etat in slow motion, Citizens United was probably the last gasp of our anemic democracy. And, uh, and we wanted to show uh, the world that, that, the, that the corporations envision. Uh, and we wanted to do that, or we, you know, we thought the best way to do that was to go to the poorest pockets uh, of the country, Camden, New Jersey, uh, which per capita is the poorest city in the United States, Pine Ridge, South Dakota, uh, Lakota Indian Reservation, uh, where the average life expectancy for a male is 48. That is the lowest in the Western Hemisphere outside of Haiti 
at any one time on Pine Ridge, 60% of the residents have neither electricity or running water. Many are living in sod huts. Um, you know, all of these, this underclass has become invisible. An underclass which, you know, is now approaching about 50 million people, uh, you know, 47 million people living in poverty in this country, tens of millions of people living in a category called near poverty. Uh, and then the coal fields of southern West Virginia, where the coal companies no longer want to dig down uh, for the coal seams, but blow the top 400 feet off of the Appalachian Mountains, uh, leaving behind a toxic, poisoned moonscape. We flew over it. It's really chilling. Hundreds of thousands of acres that will never come back. A giant impoundment sludge ponds filled with heavy metals uh, and, and toxins. Uh, very similar, by the way, to the fracking industry. Uh, and then we, we uh, go to the produce fields where you have sort of the perfect worker in the eyes of, of the corporate state, and that is an undocumented uh, worker who has no legal protection, uh, who uh, has no benefits, who gathers every morning in a parking lot at 4, uh, hoping to get on a, a crew leader will put him on a bus and take him out to the fields, him or her out to the fields, uh, they're exploited in trailer parks where uh, they sleep 20 to a trailer for $50 a week. That's $2,000 a week those uh, landlords are getting on these trailers, which should have been condemned years ago. I mean, holes in the floorboards and roaches and rats and, uh, you know, old uh, mattresses, beat-up mattresses on the floor. Uh, and when they can't get the work, they literally sleep out under the mango trees uh, or in the woods, and we went to encampments uh, where workers are uh, are forced to spend the night. Uh, and it's not surprising that in the produce fields you you constantly see conditions that can only be described as slavery, uh, where people are held against their will uh, behind barbed wire. We interviewed a worker who actually had been chained into a truck at night, uh, forced to defecate with the other workers in the corner. Uh, and we're seeing, interestingly, I mean, this has always been a problem in the produce fields. It's not a new problem. Uh, Harvest of Shame, that great documentary Murrow did, I think, in the early 60s, uh, you know, described conditions that have changed very little in the produce fields. But what we're seeing as unions are destroyed is that these conditions are now being replicated in the hotel industry, in the meatpacking industry, in the garment industry, uh, and that's the world that's being created. Uh, it's, uh, it's, of course, a global phenomenon. It's a global neo-feudalism, and workers are being told that they have to be competitive in a global marketplace, which translates into being competitive with prison labor in China or sweatshop workers in Bangladesh who make 22 cents an hour. That's the world we're creating. We're watching the rise of the security and surveillance state to hold it in place. Uh, the Obama administration has carried out, in fact, a much more egregious assault on civil liberties than the Bush administration, uh, not only failing to restore habeas corpus, not only supporting the Five Amendment Act, which retroactively made legal what under our Constitution has traditionally been illegal, the wireless wiretapping, monitoring, and eavesdropping of tens of millions of American citizens. We know this information, all of our personal information are now being stored in, in uh, supercomputers in Utah and the use of the Espionage Act, and I'm sure you've covered this on your show, but this is really, really frightening as a former investigative journalist for the New York Times, where you use the Espionage Act, which was not designed to shut down whistleblowers and leakers. 
but has been employed six times by the Obama administration uh, to go after those, in some cases, like Sterling, the uh, CIA official who purportedly uh, leaked information to Jim Rice at the New York Times, uh, of war crimes that were being committed. Uh, you know, now any investigative reporter in this country would tell you, in terms of investigating the government, uh, it's a deep freeze. They can't even get anything on background because everybody's frightened uh, of going to jail. Uh, and then finally, the National Defense Authorization Act, which I sued uh, Obama and Panetta in federal court uh, in the Southern District Court in New York, which uh, permits the military to uh, carry out uh, seizures or, you know, detain U.S. citizens, hold them in military facilities, uh, strip them of due process, uh, including in our offshore penal colonies like Guantanamo, until, in the language of Section 1021 of the NDAA, the end of hostilities. Now, Judge Catherine Forrest has issued a temporary injunction in validating the laws unconstitutional, and we're waiting uh, probably momentarily within a week or two uh, whether that injunction will be permanent. But we know the Obama administration's response because they have appealed the temporary injunction, which means that they would certainly appeal the uh, permanent and, and the issuance of a permanent injunction. So well, you know, this is all, I think, when one looks at what's happening in the reconfiguration of the country, uh, the Democrats are as complicit uh, in this process uh, as the Republicans. Our guest, Chris uh, Hedges, joining us today on Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney. Chris, as I listened to you talking then, you know, I was wondering, I mean, the subtitle, the second half of your title, Days of Destruction, is Days of Revolt. And the book ends really talking about sort of the bounce back, the revolt of people at the bottom uh, that's, that has emerged in the last year or two. And it's a key part of your argument. But I, I was wondering, as, as I listen to you, I mean, is our electoral system, uh, you know, theoretically in a democratic country, uh, people, the majority of the people have the capacity to direct the government to create policies that will serve their interests. Have we lost that in our system, in your view? Has that, that, that link been severed? Utterly. Uh, you know, people did not want the, the bailouts of Wall Street. Uh, people wanted the malfeasance and fraud and criminal activity that was carried out and has been documented by firms like Goldman Sachs. They wanted them reined in. Uh, people are not happy that trillions at this point of, of taxpayer dollars, uh, which were given to the bank, are just being hoarded. Uh, small businesses can't get loans, uh, that there's been no serious effort to ameliorate the chronic unemployment and underemployment. And, of course, you know, they fiddle with the numbers uh, every month. Uh, the, the numbers uh, do not reflect the number of unemployed. The Los Angeles Times did a story about a year ago on this uh, because they don't count, obviously, people who stop looking for work after a certain period of time, and they don't count people who have poorly paid part-time jobs uh, and yet need full-time employment. I mean, the average worker at Walmart works 28 hours a week, uh, which still puts them below the poverty line. So when they, uh, you know, get the job, they're given applications uh, for food stamps because they qualify. Um, you know, when you think about it, we're subsidizing the, the Walton family fortune. Uh, uh, and, and the heads of Walmart make $11,000 an hour. Um, it, it's, it's insane. And... Uh, you know, we can we could spend a show debating Obama's motives. I, I don't know what his motives are, uh, but when you look clearly at what's happened, uh, he has proved utterly ineffectual in terms of curbing uh, this uh, rapacious corporate capitalism. 
mean, they, they write, there's a two-tiered legal system. Matt Taibbi did a nice job of explaining this in his book, Griftopia. You know, there's one uh, legal system for Citibank and, and, and Goldman Sachs and Bank of America and General Electric and another legal system for the rest of us. Um, they have 35,000 corporate lobbyists who write the legislation. I think for me, you know, you look, you should look closely at Obamacare because that is a, a nice window into the reality, you know, our political reality. Obamacare uh, was originally hatched in the Heritage Foundation, a corporate think tank. It was first put in practice in 2006 by then-Governor Mitt Romney, and then it was adopted by the Obama administration, who very cynically had never had any intention of including the public option, we now know, uh, and uh, with the caveat that the lobbyists got to write in $447 billion in subsidies for the pharmaceutical and insurance industry, the equivalent of the bank bailout bill for those industries. Meanwhile, they can continue to raise co-payments and premiums, uh, one of the first things the Obama administration did after the passage of Obamacare was to grant exemptions because these insurance companies do not want to insure chronically ill children. And, you know, when you think about it in moral terms, we live in a country where it has now become legal for corporations to hold sick children hostage while their parents frantically grip themselves trying to save their sons or daughters. And we haven't even gotten into the issue of climate change, the shredding of Kyoto, 40% of the summer Arctic ice melting. Uh, climate scientists are in panic, as, as should be anyone who reads climate science reports. Uh, we haven't gotten into the issue of the drones, the expansion of the imperial wars into Pakistan, uh, Somalia, Yemen, uh, the decision by the Obama administration uh, to interpret the 2001 authorization to use Military Force Act as giving them the right to assassinate American citizens. And, of course, I'm speaking of the Yemeni cleric Anwar al-Awlaki, and, you know, incidentally, his, his teenage 16-year-old son two weeks later, who was never charged uh, with anything, uh, also being killed in a drone attack. I mean, th this is the, the cold reality. Uh, and, and, you know, these uh, the structure of power... Uh, you know, both in terms of the financial sector and in terms of the military-industrial complex and the inability to respond rationally. This is a constant theme, Paul Krugman, in his column week after week, to respond rationally to the economic crisis by creating a jobs program, by doing what was done in the New Deal. When we had liberal institutions that still functioned, you mentioned my book, Death of the Liberal Class, and it's really a look at how all of these institutions have collapse. Now, it's very dangerous because what we've created is a system of political paralysis. And the longer that paralysis continues, if history is any guide, the more we will empower extremist fringe elements. Uh, you know, this was a theme, a constant theme in Dostoevsky's work. He writes about it in his novel Demons, as well as Notes from Underground, uh, that sort of defeated dreamer, the cynic, the, the liberal who, you know, who, who sort of sells out, that's who Mouse Man is, of course. And as Dostoevsky writes, at that point you enter that age of moral nihilism. And I think that's right. The political philosopher Sheldon Wolin has done a good job of laying this out in his book Democracy Incorporated, where he describes our political system not as a democracy, but as something he terms inverted totalitarianism. And by that, it's not classical 
totalitarianism. It doesn't find its expression through a demagogue or a charismatic leader, but through the anonymity of the corporate state. That in classical totalitarian regimes, you have a revolutionary or a reactionary party that overthrows a decaying structure and replaces it. In inverted totalitarianism, you have corporate forces that purport to pay fealty to electoral politics, the iconography and language of American patriotism and the Constitution, and yet internally have seized all of the levers of powers to render the citizenry impotent. And I think Bolin's right. I think, you know, the facade and the language is there. Uh, but when one examines closely the cogs and gears of, of state economic and political machinery, we've been locked out. Our guest today, Chris Hedges, the co-author with Joe Sacco of Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, the highly acclaimed new book just published by Nation Books. If you'd like to talk with Chris Hedges, the phone number here at WILLAM 580 is 217-333-9455, our toll-free number 1-800-222-9455. Let's go to the phone lines right now. Line one, Champagne, you're on the air with Chris Hedges. Yes, hello, Chris. Uh just a quick question uh, and part of a statement. I've been following this for over 15 years, and I've been seeing uh, all these different reports that uh, really sub- uh, substantiate what you're, uh, what you're, you know, your claim. Also, uh, let me just go ahead and say this. My my whole thing is one. If this is actually happening. Why is it that we as Americans don't have some type of system, some type of uh, uh, organization that does investigative work, has the power to do the investigative work, to investigate, to see if these things are actually happening? And if so, able to bring them to justice. Second, is there actually an individual that's left in this world like Kennedy, say Ron Paul, for example? And uh, I'll go ahead and hang up and listen to your your remark. Well, thank you very much, caller. Chris Hedges? Well, there is there are individuals, uh, but they've been pushed outside. I, Ralph Nader would be foremost. Nader has been, understands, and has been fighting corporate power in this country longer and better than anyone else. And uh, when you read the Lewis Powell memo, the famous Lewis Powell memo, when he was uh, the counsel for the Chamber of Commerce, which you can read online. It names Nader. It says we have to destroy this guy. We have to bring him down. We have to use corporate money to create uh, think tanks uh, and uh, and change the discourse. Uh, and and they did that. They you know they they used their money to buy our system. Uh, and for me, Bill Clinton, and to watch Clinton be acclaimed at the Democratic Convention was fairly nauseating for me. Uh, Clinton is, is is one of the darker figures of American history because he continued to speak in that feel-your-pain language of traditional liberalism while he sold out the very constituency that he, constituencies that he claimed to represent. It was Clinton that passed NAFTA, uh, 1994, the greatest betrayal of the working class in this country since the 1948 Taft-Hartley Act, which made it very hard to unionize, organize. Uh, it was Clinton that deregulated the FCC, uh, turning the airwaves over to roughly a half dozen corporate interests, Viacom, General Electric, Rupert Murdoch's News Corp., uh, Disney, Clear Channel. Uh, it was Clinton that destroyed welfare. 
the welfare system. Uh, and let's not forget uh, that under the old welfare system, 70% uh, of the recipients were children. Uh, it was Clinton that, that ripped down the firewalls between commercial and investment banks, precipitating uh, the economic meltdown and the crisis that we underwent. Uh, now, Clinton was well paid for it. By the 1990s, the Democratic Party had fundraising parity with the Republicans, and by 2008, they got more. Um, what's interesting that we're watching is that Obama was not obsequious enough to Wall Street. Um, they didn't like uh, his rhetoric. He, he didn't uh, uh, sort of cater to them the way they felt. Uh, of course, let's, not, uh, let's also remember that in 2008, these guys were on their knees. They thought they'd been caught. Um, and, uh, and now that they're right back in the game and now that they have looted the U.S. Treasury and the largest transference of wealth upwards, um, they're, they're trying to throw Obama overboard. Uh, and yet Obama has done nothing uh, to uh, rein in uh, the speculative class. And let's not forget in the, that in the 17th century, uh, speculators were hung. Speculation was considered a capital crime. Today they, they run the economy and they run the political system. Uh, and, uh, you know, your caller mentioned a response. Uh, I really think at this point the only thing we have left is civil disobedience. Uh, which is why we end the chapter in Zuccotti Park, uh, the chapter Days of Revolt, uh, that the formal systems of power that once made possible incremental or piecemeal reform no longer function. Uh, and it's only by building a mass movement that defies the corporate state. And I think the brilliance of Occupy Wall Street is that it occupied the real power center, which isn't in Washington it's in Wall Street. Um, and uh, and then let me just say, because, um, you know, Bob, you mentioned it earlier uh, about Sacco. Uh, one of the goals of the book is to make, because, you know, it's written off the ground. I mean, it's just these narratives from people who endure this uh, for in these communities is to make these people visible. There's this whole class that has been rendered invisible by corporate systems of information, and that's where Sacco comes in. Uh, we had met in Bosnia in 1995 when he was working on his book, A Safe Area Garage. To, I'm not a reader of graphic novels. I, I, don't, I didn't know much about the medium, uh, but I certainly know something about a great reporter. And, and I watched him work. And, uh, you know, he's brilliant. Uh, not only does he report the story out in sort of long-form narrative journalism, but then he draws it out. And it's very labor-intensive. These books take years. He did, I think, one of the great books on the Palestine Palestinian-Israeli conflict called uh, Footnote in Gaza. It's absolutely stunning. Um, it took him six years to report and draw that out. Uh, and he did 50 pages of this book. And, and what, he, what he does is he essentially makes these communities and makes these individuals visible in, in a way the wider society has denied them visibility. Uh, and that was a, a really fundamental goal of the book. We wanted, to, to, uh, we wanted you to see them, feel them. Uh, and uh, and Sacco's work, I think, gives the book a kind of punch that simple prose would not have. He can also do things that a photographer can't do in that he can give a kind of filmic quality to people's lives. For instance, there are uh, several pages of comic panels telling the life of a 90-year-old coal miner who's since died, Rudy, who begins working in the mines after a mine in the 1930s after a mine accident kills his father, uh, the mines are not unionized, not mechanized. The only time he leaves West Virginia is when he's drafted in World War II. He's wounded as a battle.
Battle of the Bulge, and you can you can trace the whole sort of um, almost the whole you know early 20th century arc of mining and what's happened in those communities through Rudy's life. And Joe draws it out, and he's meticulous. I mean, going back and getting pictures of old 1930s mine equipment, um, so that you know everything is rigorously checked. Um, you know, nothing's made up, and it's uh, uh, you know, and it's a unique collaboration. The publishers were nervous because I don't know that we don't know of another book that's been done quite like it. But I think it really works. Um, well, and, let me say, Chris, uh, as a reader. It absolutely works. Uh, it, it, I thought it was an inspired way to approach the material, and Joe's contribution is spectacular in my view. I, and, and the reviews I've seen of all underline that point. Yeah, the New York Times said they liked him better than me. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to bring that up in, in your presence, at least. Uh, Chris, let me. Uh, one other point the caller raised is about Ron Paul. And I'm wondering if you, you know, one of the debates now among people around the country are concerned about the political future of the country is, you know, is there a potential alliance with people like the supporters of Ron Paul or even the Tea Party with uh, who might also be similarly concerned about corporate power? Or is that a hopeless venture? What's your take on that question? Well, you know, Ralph Nader, who I'm a great admirer of, does believe that there is a kind of alliance. Um, there are some issues uh, I have with Ron Paul that would make me, me personally rather skittish about an alliance. Um, one is his very poor track record on race. Um, I, you know, I don't buy the argument that going back to the gold standard, I believe that's a Ron Paul argument, yeah, it is. the solution to our economic problem. Uh, I don't think abolishing, you know, federal departments is a solution. I think you know, and there's almost a kind of pre-industrial quality, that kind of ideology, because if we don't have strong governmental regulation, how are we going to curb corporations like ExxonMobil or BP? Um, you know, what is going to be the mechanism to rein them in? I don't see that there's one out there, and I think that making the government more anemic, will, which is, of course, as far as I can tell, the goal of these corporations, uh, will... Uh, you know, I don't think we can be disempowered any further, but we'll solidify the power that these corporations always have. So, uh, but yes, uh, certainly on, you know, it's interesting in that whole, when I uh, sued uh, the president and Panetta over the NDAA, uh, all those uh, pieces that I wrote and about it were all picked up on Ron Paul's website. So on issues of civil liberties, uh, he's very good. And I have been, I was just on a radio show by a guy named Alex Jones, who's, you know, pretty far out there on the right. Um, but again, he's hammering those kinds of issues. Um, and I think at least in terms of a consciousness of where power lies, there can be a convergence. Uh, but I don't find the response, uh, you, know, you know, buying guns, for instance, that, that's just not a route that I want to go. Our guest you've just been listening to is Chris Hedges, co-author with Joe Sacco of the new book from Nation Books, Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt. Uh, much out. We've been talking about it. It's just out, I mean, and, and it's uh, quite an extraordinary uh, look at a, a, an America that is virtually absent from everywhere in our popular culture, but which counts for a large part of what many Americans are going through. Uh, today, many people living in this country. We have a full bank of callers eager to talk with Chris Hedges. Let's get to the phone lines right now and give them all the time they deserve, starting with line three. You're on the air. Hi. Um, 
I'm, I'm getting a duplex here, but um, uh, I wanted to ask about um, whether you're expanding this beyond the U.S. And I, I just, you just call it the American. I'm thinking of the tar sands in Canada, which is a real sacrifice zone, and then a more sociological sacrifice zone, which is the rural Mexico that was devastated by the NAFTA aspect of uh, dropping corn on a peasant countryside uh, that, um, you know, that still, you know, um, redounds to this day, the devastation of the countryside in Mexico, um, and things like that. But um, you did mention meeting your, your uh, Kirchturist in, in Bosnia, and I, I've always wanted to ask you whether you've gone over um, military humanitarian interventionism I'll, um critique that Chomsky lays out in Lessons from Kosovo and Jean Brickmont and Responsibility to Protect uh, Ideas. And uh, that's obviously too much for you to handle in a radio show, but I'm wondering if you've, you've done that and whether you've got an essay or whether you've had a colloquy with, with Chomsky on this, because I think one of the things that we're down to, uh, or we can blame uh, Clinton for, is... Um, making the world safe for U.S. NATO interventionism. They've actually rehearsed uh, an attack on the uh, Nigerian Delta in case our oil gets taken by somebody else or uh, the destabilization uh, by the poverty and the food rioting that we can anticipate um, gets worse. And uh, So I, that's not in the form of a question, but I really appreciate your work, and I wrestle with it quite frequently, and thank you. Well, thank you very much, caller. Chris Edges? Yeah, I mean, the, the, he raises a really important point that in the name of humanitarian intervention, of course, we carry out an act of preemptive war against Iraq, which under post-Nuremberg laws uh, is uh, defined as a criminal war of aggression. It's illegal, uh, just as our invasion of Afghanistan uh, under international law is illegal. Uh, and these were described, or certainly the Iraqi intervention was described as humanitarian and, and supported by all sorts of figures who had cheerleaded the efforts in Kosovo and in Bosnia. Now, I supported the interventions in both Bosnia and Kosovo. I was there. I was in Sarajevo when it was under siege. And, um, uh, I, you know, there was for three and a half years a, a slaughter within the city of Sarajevo as well as the other five safe areas in Bosnia ringed by Serbian artillery uh, who just pounded us with shells. I mean, when I was in Sarajevo, we were being hit with 2,000 shells a day, a constant sniper fire, four to five dead a day, two dozen wounded a day. Uh, and I think with that kind of slaughter, you know, NATO, the NATO uh, strikes, which took out the Serb heavy artillery and ended the war, were warranted. Uh, the, uh, the intervention in Kosovo uh, was much more problematic because, of course, they struck Belgrade. I think they should never have hit anything outside of Kosovo itself, uh, you know, blowing up the television station, blowing up the Chinese embassy by mistake. I mean, um, you know, that was that was awful and, and inappropriate. Um, but I'm not, uh, you know, I don't, I also covered the first Gulf War, and I break with a lot of sort of peace activists over the issue of the first Gulf War, uh, having spent a lot of time in Saddam Hussein's Iraq, uh, it, it struck me that, you know, he did have troops massed on the border with Saudi Arabia. I don't. I think all the U.N. resolutions in the world would have never driven him out of Kuwait. And I think there's pretty good evidence that he was waiting to see if he could get away with seizing 
the oil fields, the northern oil fields in Saudi as well. Um, that was clearly, as your caller points out, I mean, that was a war for oil. I mean, the message, the fundamental message of the first Gulf War delivered to the Muslim world and maybe the rest of the world was, we have everything, and if you try and take it away from us, we'll kill you. Um, and uh, I, I don't deny that. Uh, and again, as much as I admire Noam Chomsky, and I just wrote an introduction for the book, one of his, he charged him out so fast, I don't know if it was the latest. Um, <laughs> I, I do, I, I guess, you know, there would be a divergence between Noam and myself on that issue. Okay, let's go to another caller now for our guest, Chris Hedges. Let's go to line one. You're on the air. Hello. Is, am I on the air? You are indeed. Thank you very much. I, I look forward to reading the book. And um, I think Paul Mute, the first, uh, last caller, raised the issue of the international dimension. Um, I think this, uh, from what you've been discussing, the term sacrificial zone kind of reminds me of what we became familiar with in the environmental racism movement. And I'm sure that it's sort of implicit in your work, but I wonder if you could talk explicitly about the race and gender dimensions of this crisis. Of course, it's not only a national, but a global crisis. I'll hang up and listen on the air. And if I can just interject before you turn to the answer, the book is filled with answers. The book is all about that, if I may say so, just from an outsider's uh, perspective. Go ahead, Chris Hedges. Yeah, well, I mean, who gets sacrificed? Uh, you know, the, 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 the sort of the theme that runs through all of these sacrifice zones is white supremacy. Uh, whether it's in Pine Ridge, whether it's in Camden, yes, the, you know, most of the people in Southern West Virginia are white. Um, uh, but they, they're, you know, they're victimized by this uh, elite class. And, uh, uh, it, it, it's, you know, the, the previous caller had mentioned, you know, what about sacrifice zones? In Mexico, I mean, he's dead right. There are sacrifice zones uh, all around the globe, um, and, and we just happen to look at the sacrifice zones internally. Uh, but these are places that are just ruthlessly exploited until they're devastated, and then they're abandoned uh, as these kind of predatory forces move forward. They they kill these zones, as, as they're rapidly doing now with the Appalachian Mountains, for instance. Um, and, and the reason we began with Pine Ridge is because that's where the whole demented project of ceaseless exploitation uh, began. That, that created the template where uh, the railroad barons and the mining magnets and the timber merchants, uh, uh, you know, they and, and you know the people who decimated the buffalo herds, uh, you know, they, they wanted they wanted the natural resources and they wanted the land. And they were quite willing to carry out an act of genocide uh, to dispose of those who human beings who they saw as impediments, and uh, that uh, you know formed both the ethic and the mechanism by which we then began to build our empire of the Philippines, Cuba, and of course today in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, we began with Pine Ridge very consciously for that reason. And I would also add that part of the uh, reason I think that the native communities were so uh, ruthlessly destroyed is because they offered a competing ethic, another way of dealing with the natural world and dealing with each other. Those figures like Sitting Bull, you know, great leaders uh, within native communities didn't hoard goods. Uh, everything was communal, everything was shared. And interestingly enough, when Marx and Engels begin their work on, on uh, communism, they 
look very, very closely at the structures of governance within the Iroquois, the Iroquois nation. If you look at Marx's notebooks, which I've done, um, there you have to get them. I had to get them out of the rare book room of the Princeton Library, but it's, it's filled with very, very detailed notes on Iroquois society. Uh, and now this whole demented project is is crashing in on us. Um, this ceaseless exploitation uh, is essentially becoming a form of cannibalism, uh, and we need to recover another ethic uh, if we're going to survive as a species. Chris, just one thing that is, I've heard you talk today and read the book and in other writings too. I mean, we're you talked about climate change and the environmental ecological crisis, which you know no human can escape, no matter how. I mean, big the gate is in their gated community. Uh, it, yet at the same time, those who benefit by the system uh, seem to have precious little interest in really directly solving this problem. And, you know, it, it seems, you know, is there a plan by some people to move to another to Mars or some other? What is the thinking here? I, it, it seems irrational to me. Well, it is, you know. I mean, I, I have a kind of insight into these people because I, although I come out of the working class, was shipped off to a boarding school in New England uh, at the age of 10 on scholarship. So I grew up with the super rich. Um, and, um, you know, all the George W. Bushes of the world, uh, that's who I had to go to school with. And, in fact, you know, they're just sort of stupid. Um, they, uh, they really don't think uh, beyond their own sort of personal enrichment. Uh, their massive amounts of wealth means that they live in their own version of the Forbidden City or Versailles. Um, they're unplugged from the daily reality, not only of most Americans, but the rest of the planet. I think a writer for the New Yorker called it Richistan. Um, and, you know, within these enclaves, which they're never forced to leave, I mean, we're talking about people who never fly commercial airplanes kind of thing. Um, uh, they just, they, they don't know. Um, and they're probably going to be the last to know. Uh, you know, what, what is the response of these corporations to the disappearance of summer sea ice in the Arctic? Well, they can't wait to get their, uh, you know, their freighters up there to extract the oil and the gas and the last vestiges of the fish stocks and the minerals. It's, it's insanity. It, it's like, you know, it, it, it proves that Melville's Moby Dick was the most important book written in American literature because... You know, they're all like Ahab. It's like my, you know, my my methods and my, uh, my you know, my 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 methods and my uh, tools and my plans are are saying it's my object. I'm butchering the quote. My object is mad. I mean, that's exactly right. Uh, that there's a kind of rationality to the process, but the end result is is uh, is insane. And yet, that these are the people who are not only determining. Uh, what's happening in terms of the global economy, what's happening in terms of the nation, but they're in charge of our relationship with the ecosystem on which we depend for life. And unless there is a radical and swift reconfiguration, we're finished. Chris Hedges, our guest. I'm Bob McChesney. This is Media Matters and WILL AM 580, based in beautiful Urbana, Illinois. We have three callers. I want to get to all three of them. Uh, and we're going to start right away with line four, Coles County. You're on the air with Chris Hedges. Yes, uh, I agree with the gentleman about uh, civil disobedience, but I was surprised that he wasn't more critical than he was about uh, Ron Paul. Uh, seemed, of course, we all agree with Ron Paul on a number of issues, 
I don't think there's any question about that. But I, uh, I, as far as I'm concerned, Ron Paul is probably about as uh, uh, big and en- more uh, bad an enemy of the working people of the country as you can find. He's opposed to the very existence of the uh, safety net, uh, opposed to Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, pensions, and what have you. And I think that you can't find a much more uh, solid supporter of the corporate interests than him. I will give him credit. I'm sure that uh, the corporate interests involved in uh, military manufacturing probably does not like him. So I will give him credit on that. But I think overall, corporate interests uh, would very, very much like uh, like his views. So uh, uh, go ahead and comment. Well, thank you very much, caller, Chris. Well, yeah, I mean, Ron Paul has a he has these strange mixtures of ideology. He's very opposed to imperial war. He is very opposed to the military-industrial complex. He is a fervent defender of civil liberties, all of you know which I would uh, support. But I agree with the caller. There are many, many aspects of Ron Paul uh, that I think, you know, are not, for me, you know, offer any kind of a credible solution to this corporate coup d'etat that we've undergone. Let's go back to our next caller, or go to our next caller. Now, line three, Champagne, you're on the air with Chris Edges. Yeah, I was just, uh, in terms of a comment from you uh, regarding uh, Occupy Wall Street, because actually I I thought this was going to be a greater force, and actually... At one point, I was in Asheville, uh, North Carolina. That was, you know, maybe six months later, whatever. And, and, you know, they were very much into it and, you know, their own agenda and, and democratic process and a whole bit in the park. So I'll just go off the air and let you comment. Yeah, Chris, if I, I got a note regarding this, too, from another caller. Uh, and I think just what's what's the state of Occupy Wall Street? Is it petered out? Is it in remission? Uh, is it poised for a comeback? Uh, where are we in your view? Well, let's be clear, it got crushed, and it got crushed by the Obama administration, a coordinated national effort where they, uh, you know, went and tried to physically, and in most cases succeeded, er- erasing these encampments. Um, the, you know, that for me was a very telling moment, because uh, if, you know, going back to Krugman's constant theme, the government responded rationally, then to you know to the grievances that that pushed people into these encampments, uh, then they would have instituted a massive jobs program, uh, particularly targeted at those under the age of 25. They would have declared a moratorium on bank foreclosures and repossessions. They would have forgiven student debt, uh, and they would have created a rational health care system, which would have met the public option or uh, you know Medicaid for all. Um, and they didn't do that. They spoke exclusively in the language of force. Now, it's always the ruling class that determines the parameter of rebellion or revolt. Uh, and because they didn't respond rationally, uh, this isn't over. Uh, if they had responded rationally, the way Roosevelt did with the breakdown of capitalism in the 1930s, uh, they would have gone a long way to uh, dissipating uh, social unrest. Uh, unfortunately, they were unable or lacked the vision, or they didn't do that. Uh, and so something's coming. I've covered, revol- I covered the revolutions in Eastern Europe. I covered both of the Palestinian uprisings. I covered the breakdown in Yugoslavia. You know, as a reporter and someone who just spent two years in the poorest pockets of the United States, there is absolutely no doubt that, that we're about to get blowback. When will it come? What will trigger it? What will it look like? Will it? Will it look like Occupy? Will it even be called Occupy? 
no one knows. Um, you know, I've, I tell the story many times uh, covering the breakdown of the communist regime in East Germany. On November 9th, I was with the leaders of the opposition in Leipzig, and they said maybe within a year we will have free passage back and forth across the Berlin Wall. Within a few hours, the Berlin Wall, at least as an impediment to human traffic, did not exist, and yet they had no idea. And that's true in every movement I covered. So something's coming. Um, and, you know, we, we have very strong proto-fascist forces in this country that celebrate the gun culture, that demonize the vulnerable, undocumented workers, Muslims, homosexuals, uh, you know, fused with the Christian right. Um, you know, we, in a backlash could be a very frightening kind of right-wing backlash, but that something is coming. I now, I, I, there, I have not, uh, you know, any doubt about but when, what it will look like that. I don't know, and no one knows. The prophetic voice of Chris Hedges there. Uh, Chris, let's go now to another caller, Line 1 Urbana. You're on the air. Yeah, um, I just wanted to make a couple quick comments. Um, it seems to me that many of the people that do struggle economically in this country are some of the same people who bought into the anti-government line that gov government's the problem, government regulation, things like government regulation and universal health care are socialism, we don't want it, and that the very people that these things would help are the very people who are going to speak out against it. So I was wondering your comments on that. And also, um, I would like, you know, the Tea Party seemed to do a pretty good job of infiltrating the Republican Party. I'm sure, you know, a lot of money was involved. But I would like to see the Occupy Wall Street, the Green Party, kind of infiltrate the Democratic Party in the same way. And I just wonder if you think that's even possible or what your thoughts are. Thanks so much. Well, thank you very much, caller. Chris Hedges? Um, well, in terms of sort of working within the political process, it's bought and sold. I mean... Uh, not only the legislative branch, not only the executive branch, not only the systems of information, but the judicial branch is a wholly owned subsidiary of the corporate state. Um, and I think Wisconsin was the good example of what you don't want to do. Uh, funneling the energy into the recall was a fatal mistake because we can't play this game. We, we were always going to lose. And what they should have done is gone for the general strike. They should have stayed outside the systems of power because both parties are culpable uh, and build pressure. I mean, Karl Popper, in his great work, The Open Society and Its Enemies, writes that, you know, how do you get good people into power is the wrong question. Uh, most people attracted to power, as Popper notes, uh, are at best mediocre, which is probably Obama, and venal, which is Romney or Bush. Uh, the question is, how do you make the powerful frightened of you? Uh, and that is the right question. It's all the movements that never achieved formal political power in American democracy that opened up the democracy to uh, wider and wider segments of the population. The labor movement, the uh, civil rights movement, the Liberty Party that fought slavery, the suffragists. Uh, there's a wonderful scene, I think it's in Kissinger's memoirs, but I don't want any reader to go by the, any listener to go by the book, um, where they're standing at the window, I think it's 71, there's a huge anti-war demonstration, Nixon's ring the White House uh, with buses to keep back the demonstrators, and he's standing at the window, wringing his hands, going, Henry, Henry, they're going to break through the barricades and get us. And that's precisely where we want people in power to be. Uh, and I think that's why, and, I, and I've lived in France, and, and that 
goes some way to explaining, you know, what's kept uh, the French system rational because of the strength of French uh, labor unions, some of which, by the way, are communist, uh, French student movements, farmers' unions. We need to re rebuild those movements that are outside the systems of power and which were systematically destroyed in this country, uh, and that's a whole other show, uh, but I spent a long time in death of the liberal class explaining, going back to World War I, how they were dismantled. Um, that's what we need to do. That's what the Occupy movement has attempted to do. Uh, I would not recommend uh, investing energy back into the formal systems of power, but building mass movements that pushed against all of the structures of power, whether uh, those power structures were uh, inhabited by Democrat or Republican. Chris Hedges, we've only got about 30, 45 seconds left in the show. and just wondering if you have any final words, something you want to talk about that we haven't had a chance to get to. Uh, I think we've covered, you know, most of the issues that I care about. Uh, I, uh, you know, I would just end by saying that if you look closely, the two party, the only thing these two parties have to offer is fear, fear of the other, uh, you know, that, uh, and, and that's because I think their platforms uh, internally are just basically hollow and empty. Uh, and I think we've, we've got to begin. I'm, I, I will vote for either Green Party, Joe Stein, or Rocky Anderson. I'll vote just as a protest vote um, and invest my energy in, uh, in acts of civil disobedience to try and push back a corporate, the corporate state on, on both uh, financial malfeasance uh, as well as, you know, the environment, the XL pipeline, and everything else. And I think, you know, that's going to jail is more time than I care to donate to the U.S. government, but I, I don't think there's an option left. Chris Hedges, our guest today in Media Matters. Chris, thank you so much for taking time to join us today. Thank you, Bob. Uh, Chris is the co-author of Joe Sacco of Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, Just Out with Nation Books. I'm Bob McChesney. I want to thank Kyle Crowha, my engineer. And, of course, Christina Williams, my producer, for their phenomenal work. I will be back in 167 hours. Until then, everyone, have a great week.